Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 16. On today's episode, we are going to discuss the history and the persecution of the Hazara people. Now, if you don't know who the Hazaras are, that's okay. I'll give you a quick context. The Hazaras are an ethnic people native to Afghanistan, but there's a very big population in Pakistan also. So what makes them notable is that they are a double minority. Okay, so one, they have Central Asian features, which makes makes them stick out from everybody else. And two, they practice Shia Islam, whereas a majority practices Sunni Islam. At the beginning of the year, you may have seen them in the news. 11 minors were executed in Pakistan because they were Hazaras. Now, I wish I could say that this is something new. But if you look at the history of the Hazara people, you will see that they have gone through so much since since the 1800s. They've gone through genocide, slavery, their land has been stolen, and they are victims of sectarian violence. So it's a very complicated history, and we're going to go, we're going to unpack it with the help of our guest, Niamatullah Ibrahim. He's the author of the book, The Hazaras and the Afghan State. If you want to learn more about the Hazaras, this is the book I would recommend. Also, if you really like the podcast and you really like the Brown History Instagram page and you want to support, check out our Patreon website, patreon.com slash brownhistory. Your help, your support goes a long way. All right. I hate podcast episodes with long introductions, so let's begin. It was honest. It was good. I, I, was, I had a good time. Okay. Um, do you want to start? Yeah. Yeah. So I read your book. I mean, I read as much as I can in the time given, and it was really, really fascinating to to see how this issue is happening today and how it goes back to all the way. I didn't even know it went that far back, but it went all the way that all the way during uh, the British when they were in India. And I guess that's where I want to start from, you know, the beginning of how this happened. So I guess the first person we should talk about is this guy who looks like DJ Khalid, um, Abdur Rahman Khan. Abdur Rahman Khan, yeah. Yeah. So from my understanding is that he was a very bad, evil guy and he ruled the country. And I think he's also responsible for, you know, making Afghanistan the way it is now. Yep. And so from my understanding is he's a guy who wanted power and... The only way he got power was the British was helping. Well, the British were helping him, giving him money, giving him weapons. They didn't want to. They didn't want to. I always wondered why the British never colonized Afghanistan, and now it kind of the way it seems they did colonize indirectly Afghanistan. They they kind of ran the show behind the curtain, and they let this guy Abdul Rahman Khan do whatever he wants to do. So. Could you like elaborate on that and, and kind of summarize on that? So just um, in terms of historical background, I think uh, uh, Amir Abdurrahman Khan is a very central figure in yeah. the history of Afghanistan uh, for a number of reasons. First, I think it was under his reign uh, between uh, 1880 and 1901 that Afghanistan as a state took its current form meaning it is current boundaries and, uh, and it was during his reign that with the help of the British, he also uh, imposed a, a heavily centralized government authority over you know, the population of what is today Afghanistan. And he did this uh, in a number of ways. First, you know, we should take into account that uh, he came to power at the end of the second Anglo-Afghan war. So I, I don't remember the exact dates, but let's say at 1880, um, the British were in Afghanistan. They had uh, taken control of um, uh, you know, most of Afghanistan, but uh, you know, they were facing rebellions from many groups across Afghanistan. And this was the second time they had invaded Afghanistan, the first time being um, in eighteen. Uh, 18- the 38 to 1840, if I remember the, the years exactly. The first time the, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, invasion uh, ended quite miserably with the, you know, a massive defeat on the part of the British army. They lost you know, thousands of people uh, in Afghanistan. So the second time they invaded Afghanistan, uh, they faced a similar uh, sort of rebellion in Kabul and a number of provinces. Right. So, in order to um, 
uh, in a diffuse situation, they decided to change their strategy, approach in Afghanistan. That was to find someone who could work with them. Uh, and, and it was in this process that you know, Amir Abdurrahman Khan, who before these years were in exile in, uh, I think, in, in Tashkent, in Central Asia now. So he comes to Afghanistan and there is a series of letters exchanged between him and the British officials and commanders in Afghanistan. So uh, they reach an agreement, you know, as a result, what we have is in this very uh, peculiar arrangement, you know, Afghanistan is not directly colonized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Afghan leaders, Abdurrahman Khan even claims that he, you know, was not, uh, uh, ruled by any of the imperial powers uh, as other countries around the region were, but uh, there was indirect rule, there was this arrangement between him and the British India that the British India would control a foreign policy and also um, the British and the, the Russians at that time, they worked together to draw the boundaries around Afghanistan. Which are currently current boundaries yeah often without consultation with uh, uh with him uh, amir amir yeah exactly so you just to just put lines wherever they want they didn't need to ask anybody's permission well he, he was often involved i think you know he didn't was, care informed but i think there is no historical record of him any making any uh, any effort to change uh, any of those boundaries around the forest okay. so british gave him money support, weapons, uh, and uh, he gave them the control over Afghanistan's foreign policy to British India, because that was a primary concern because they were very much worried about Russians encroaching in Afghanistan and through Afghanistan into the Indian subcontinent. Right. So I hope it was a bit a bit too long in terms no, of- No, 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 this is great, this is great, you did it well. Um, so now, now he has power, right? Now he's the leader of Afghanistan, he has power, he has unlimited supply of money and weapons coming from the British, and the British don't really care about the people of Afghanistan, they just want to make sure what they have is protected. What does Amir Abdul Rahman Khan do once he gets power? And how does he keep control? Okay. So let us, uh, you know, keep it in context of that time. You know, Afghanistan at that time is a highly, you know, fragmented society. It hasn't experienced anything like, uh, you know, like modern, a government. centralized. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they were like, you know, you know, empires, you know, that were sometimes based out of Kabul or like Ghazni different or Different tribes all scattered Rose, around the country. You know, yeah, but as a country, it didn't have a sort of a unifying center, you know, right. to speak. Uh, you know, Kabul was a major city, uh, you know, so was Kandahar, so was Mazari Sharif or Herat. But, uh, you know, because of, you know, history and uh, geography and economy, you know, this is a, a quite a sparsely populated country as well. So in comparison to many other countries around it. So what he so the challenge was how do you unify these people bring under rule? Mm-hmm. So the British draw the boundaries, they gave you the money and weapons, and how do you uh, make sure that people also listen to you within those boundaries? So here I think he used a number of uh, uh, strategies and tactics that are you know I think unique to him in, in the history of Afghanistan, and one of which is. Um, uh, you know, an, an instrumental uh, exploitation of religion. So he brought all the ulamas under his power in Kabul, and he made them, uh, uh, make them, uh, you know, convince them to issue fatwas in support of his wars, and, and make sure that he is uh, uh, declared as a leader of the faithful, the Amirul Mu'minin in Afghanistan. Okay, so he he. Added Islam to his leader. He added religion and God to his leadership. Absolutely. Okay. And then what else he did was he was what is a brutal policy of divide and rule, like so, the British, like the British, like like you know you know copying you know the you know the, those uh, tactics from uh, uh, you know British uh, history and applying it in Afghanistan. So 
there were people who were opposing him and then he would um, simply you know mobilize other people against him okay and often using religious uh, divisions as one of those uh, instruments for mobilizing one group against other or one tribe against other tribes so you know it could be a, a Persian tribe mobilized against other Persian tribe and you know Sunnis against Shias you know those sorts of tactics and strategies and then he also established with the help of the British a very brutal spy system a spy system yeah so I think you know it, it is I think something that probably historians can investigate further how he <laughs> learned those tactics some say it came from Russia some say he learned it from somewhere else but it was really a quite heavily centralized brutal uh, system of spyrage across Afghanistan okay so so no one uh, can trust nobody i guess during this yeah, time yeah like any dictatorship you would find anywhere in the world uh think it is just you use fear coercion intimidation uh you know the use of force without the rule of law so, so everyone is fearful of everybody else wow so then so then you have all these tribes fighting against each other you have the institutions of religions are corrupted now and no one can be trusted so where does the so where does the hazaras am i pronouncing it right hazaras yep so uh, where where do the tribes of hazaras first of all who are the hazaras what religion are they what religion is uh abdul rahman ali khan abdul rahman khan uh, sorry abdul rahman khan he's a sunni right yep okay and so what yeah so go ahead sorry so let us explain a little bit the, the ethnic and religious um, landscape of Afghanistan, if, if you can use that word. Uh, Afghanistan is uh, a Sunni majority country. Uh, it's now, it was uh, a Sunni majority country under Abdul Rahman Khan. Uh, the majority of the people of Afghanistan follow Sunni tradition of Islam, mainly Hanafi uh, within the Sunni. Uh, uh, traditions and then there is a Shia minority uh, that is uh, you know, primarily dominated by the Hazaras but there are also substantial number of other communities who are also Shias Khizilbash uh, and Bayats and I think smaller communities among the Tajiks as well who are also Shias and then uh, in terms of ethnic breakdown uh, the country is really um, uh, a reflection of its history being uh, sort of a roundabout between these major regions of the world, uh, Central Asia, China, and India, and, uh, and the Middle East. So, so you can find literally anyone who is around Afghanistan in Afghanistan as well. But nonetheless, there are like four main ethnic, uh, ethnic groups, the Pashtuns, who are mainly Sunni, the Tajiks, who are also Persian speakers, but mainly Sunni, and then the Hazaras are uh, sort of divided between three different religions. You know, uh, probably more than half of them are Shia Muslims, and they comprise this central region in Afghanistan called Hazarajat, a mountainous region which is in the center of the country. And there are also other Hazaras who are practicing Sunni Islam, and there are other Hazaras who uh, practice Ismaili Shia branch of the, the Shia tradition. And then there are also uh, the Uzbeks and the Turkmens, you know, who are also living in northern part of Afghanistan, often bordering the provinces with Uzbekistan in Turkmenistan. Mm -hmm. So, as you can imagine, you know, this sort of landscape you know, offers uh, a perfect, uh, if I, you know, place for uh, exploiting those sort of divisions. So, all, all this of crisscrossing ethnic yeah. and religious divisions uh, that you can use uh, to mobilize groups against other groups. Right. And then, uh, you know, for you know, much of his rule in the 1880s, he was focusing on these other ethno-linguistic groups. And then, with regards to the Hazaras, uh, there is this period that's called, you know, the Hazara War, which he himself in his... Uh, uh, autobiography, well, it's also explanation in autobiography, which is attributed to him, uh, that he uh, says there were four civil wars under 
Hussein in one of them is Hazara War, which is from 1891 to 1893. Okay. And th this is a period where he mobilizes everyone from across Afghanistan and half the ulama issue of fatwa against the Hazaras as, as infidels. And then also uh, declares that anyone who participates in the war, they can uh, have a share of the booties of the war in terms of uh, Hazara lands and Hazara slaves and those uh, sorts of material incentives which come with, in addition to religious legitimacy, which was created by those fatwas. So he was using, he was trying to control each tribe. And when it came to the Hazaras, he used their Shia differences against them. And he tried to use religion as a way to not just make this a, a war, but like a holy war. And then, and then this way, it mobilized all the Sunni tribes to massacre, to fight the Hazaras. And in return, you get to, if you win, you get to pillage their women, their their land, and their and their money. Is that exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. So what happened in those three years of the Hazara War and the aftermath of it was, you know, what can be, I think, a, can, one can make a strong case was sort of a genocide in Afghanistan. So the Hazaras. Um, so it wasn't a war. It was more of a genocide. But well, he called I mean, it a war. Yeah, well, you can, you can find all those elements of what is a genocide in contemporary world. Yeah, you know, you know, you can take the definition of a gen what a genocide is. You can find all of those elements in uh, uh, 1890s Afghanistan and what happened to the Hazaras. Okay. Yeah. So they lost the war. I'm right. Has yep. So, the, so, so you can imagine. Uh, uh, the Hazaras at that time being this sort of, uh, you know, a community of several small communities in its 19th century Afghanistan, uh, you know, these communities in different valleys of a very mountainous region, uh, they could not, you know, put up an organized resistance against uh, heavily centralized uh, government. Backed by the British. All, backed by the British and modern weaponry at the time. So the Hazaras put up resistance. Um, uh, at one point, they, uh, I think, uh, um, repelled uh, you know, some sections of uh, the army, uh, 1891, I think. And then there was this second uh, uh, round of attack from all four directions of Hazarajan, because it is in the center, north, south, west, and east. So at that point, they you know, conquered Hazarajan by force. And then uh, uh, in the course of that conquest, they enslaved Hazara women uh, and took up Hazara land and destroyed Hazara farms and villages and, and, uh, and houses. And that uh, essentially led to significant um, uh, dramatic shrinking of Hazara land, population, and uh, as a result, the uh, social uh, economic and political influence in Afghanistan. So it, it set them back a very long, long way back. Yep. Yep. So, so uh, you know, large swaths of land were de depopulated. Yeah. Uh, uh, many, many uh, parts of the, uh, you know, what was Hazarjad at that time were taken over. Uh, uh, you know, their populations were forced to leave. And then their land was distributed to groups that had participated in the war against the Hazaras. Ouch. Yep. So, and this is the period you see uh, in this mass migration of Hazaras. Uh, some, uh, you know, just fleeing, you know, the war and uh, the conquest and, and some, um, you know, being sold as slaves in uh, uh, what became sort of a you know, quite a profitable, uh, well, like a slave market in Kabul and Kandahar and people were, you know, brought in those cities and they were sold in slavery and British India, some in Central Asia as well. So uh, as a result of that, you see uh, now Hazara populations in other countries around Afghanistan as well. So many of those are the descendants of people who fled Afghanistan in uh, 1890s. 
So Quetta in Pakistan, there's a huge number of uh, there's a really big Hazara community there. That those that the source of that community comes from the people who fled that war. Yep, predominantly. Really? Predominantly, yes. Yep. Wow. What about the anti-Shia ideology that was happening during the war? Is that the source of the anti-Shia that's happening now? Well, I think you know, this whole sectarian conflict in uh, the region is probably a bit more complicated. Okay. Uh, because the, um, the dynamics of the conflict in Pakistan is different from what happened in Afghanistan in 1890s. Okay. I want to talk about that after. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just to take it into historical context, I think, you know, you know, Afghanistan um, often takes you know huge pride in having this very long tradition of uh, uh, ethnic, uh, religious, and cultural tolerance. You know, because that that region has this very rich history of uh, you know coexistence uh, you know, between various uh, groups. I mean, if you look at historically in a place like Kabul or Kandahar or Herat. Up to the 19th century, during the era of Abdurrahman Khan, before that, you know, you would see, you know, tens of communities, you know, uh, you know that in addition to the Shi- the Muslims would also include the Hindus and the Sikhs and the Jews and the Armenian Christians, even. So there is this very long tradition of tolerance in Afghanistan, uh, which is also uh, often attributed to the Hanafi tradition of Sunni Islam, which is quite tolerant of other religious sects uh, within the Muslim Islamic community as well. So Amir Abdurrahman Khan comes, you know, changes all of this, you know, during that period. Uh, he messed it up. Messed it up. He uses, you know, money, a promise of uh, looting and, uh, and, I don't know, fatwa, if you kill the Hazaras, you will go to paradise and they are infidels, oh all of those things. So... So um, for the first time in, in modern Afghanistan, this is uh, a religiously sanctioned violence led by a state, you know, bringing everybody else against one sections of the country. Mm-hmm. So what happens after that is like, I think a combination of all of those factors, you know, uh, the Hazaras became, a, his, you know, a marginalized uh, uh, group in Afghanistan because they lost so much of their power and land that they couldn't recover. Uh, historically, uh, from what happened to them, the trauma of that violence against Hazaras continue to be felt. I think in in, uh, in the way Hazaras feel and the way they relate to politics of the country. Um, but I think at the same time, we should also see the dynamics of conflict in every period of the history is different yeah. from what happened in the in the previous uh, uh, history of the country. So after the war was over, they became, you know, at the bottom of the social hierarchy of Afghanistan. And there were different uh, kings or emirs that came and left. And after that, there was a man named Nader Khan, I think, who reinforced this kind of violence. Nader Khan, who kind of reinforced that. That was the last emir of Afghanistan? Uh, Well, Nader Khan came to power, uh, maybe it's, it's important to reflect on what happened before Nader Khan. Okay. So uh, before Nader Khan, Afghanistan uh, was ruled by a reformist, modernist king called Amanullah Khan. He is, Amanullah Khan is a grandson of Amir Abdurrahman Khan. He leads an initiative to modernize Afghanistan, bring some reforms, uh, for example, by introducing modern education, uh, uh, introducing a new constitution. You know. What year is this? And this is uh, from eighteen, uh, from nineteen nineteen to two thousand uh, to, to nineteen twenty nine. Nineteen twenty nine. Nineteen to nineteen twenty nine. Yeah. Okay. And he also secures the independence of Afghanistan in foreign policy from British India in nineteen nineteen. Wow. So he uh, initiated a series of reform. And one of those reforms is uh, with regards uh, to the Hazaras. He uh, 
formally uh, de uh, issues a decree which prohibits you know slavery in Kabul. Wait, so there's slavery still happening in 1918, 1917? 1920s, sorry, 1920s. In the 1920s, there's still slavery going on. Yep. yep. Wow. So, so there is a formal decree which banned the slavery, but uh, you know, I, I think from what we know about the history, uh, there was no formal slave market, but the sort of relationship which had developed in the course of... Um, uh, 40, 50 years, you know, endures uh, the Hazaras being at the lower end of the bottom of the, the hierarchy in the wow. society. Wow. Uh, so, terrible. you know, so what you can see probably, you know, modern form of slavery continues. Uh, and then in 1929, uh, Khan is overthrown in a rebellion because, you know, some of those reforms were uh, not liked by the conservative sections of the society. For example, he was also uh, trying to introduce uh, uh, changes uh, in relation to the role and the status of women in the country. For example, the women could take off their hijab, those kind of uh, changes. So he uh, was overthrown. He, he was forced to abdicate, you know, leave the country. He went to um, Europe. And then Nader Khan, who had served as his ambassador to Europe, France, I think, and or I think a, a minister at some point, he um, comes back and takes power and declares himself the king. Okay. And for the period of uh, another, he, he only ruled for three years. Uh, uh, from no, I think a bit longer, from 1929 to 1933. So Nader Khan you know, initiates you know, a period of centralization and he reverses some of the reforms which was initiated by his father, but by his predecessor, Amarullah Khan. And that obviously affects the Hazaras also because there was some hope that some of those reforms by Amarullah Khan would also uh, lead to improvement of the situation of the Hazaras as well. Wow. So in 1933, uh, he is assassinated by a high school student in Kabul, uh, someone uh, who is in fact a Hazara, a student of Abdul Khaliq. Uh, and then he, uh, he is uh, succeeded by his son, uh, Zahir Shah, uh, uh, who rules the country until 1975. 73, sorry, Is he better than his father, or was he just as bad? Well, he, he was too. He was too young uh, because he rules uh, over a period of you know relatively long uh, stability in the history of the country for forty years, nineteen thirty-three to nineteen seventy-three. That's a long time. It's very long time. But he, what what happens during his reign is that he has, I think, he was. Quite young, I don't know, 18 years old when he became king or something, because his father was assassinated. <laughs> wow. So what happens is that his in most of his reign, the country is ruled by his uncles as prime ministers. So some of this them are very brutal, uh, uh, you know, centralizers and um, you know, uh, you know, and, and there were others who were also initiated in um, you know continuing some reform. Uh, in the in administration of the country. So the situation Omar, for the Hazaras didn't get any better? Uh, well, not until the 1960s and 70s, there were small changes happening uh, in, in, during those years. Okay. And so what happened in the you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s? So in the 60s, um, uh, there is a period of another uh, reform uh, in Afghanistan. It is, again, led by... Zahir Shah, who has become more mature, and he tries to assert uh, power, uh, take some of the influence away from his uh, uncles and family members. And he initiates a period of uh, what is uh, commonly remembered as constitutional democracy. So he introduces election uh, in 1964, uh, adopts a new constitution, uh, and which bans members of his family uh, from holding executive power. So 
it is during this period that you also see the birth of uh, you know, all of these modernist movements, you know, leftist, uh, you know, communist movements emerge in Afghanistan, you know, uh, Maoist groups came, came in Afghanistan, Islamists came in Afghanistan. Uh, there is a level of freedom in Kabul, you know, for all of these groups uh, uh, in uh, urban centers, is in, you know, relatively expansion of relative expansion of the education sector, for, uh, which also uh, creates opportunities for the Hazaras to participate in education as well. And then uh, in 1973, he is um, uh, also overthrown in a coup by one of his uh, family members, Daoud Khan, who was very unhappy with the direction of the changes, especially um, the fact that his uh, the royal family were, were, were excluded from holding executive power. So he uh, takes power in the Queen in 1973, cancels all of those reforms initiated by Zahir Shah, and rules the country for uh, five years until 1978. Okay. And 1978, there's another coup by the communists this time. <laughs> there's a lot of coups. Yeah. And that, in fact, uh, is the beginning of what happened to Afghanistan in terms of conflict. So uh, the, 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 the group that came into power uh, in 1978, it is called the People's uh, PDP, People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. It is a pro-Soviet communist party. And then uh, once they are in power, they try to again introduce reform, uh, a, a Soviet model of uh, reform, uh, which is also uh, angering the conservative sections of the society. There's rebellion, the Mujahideen came, and the, then there is the Soviets intervene, okay. support their regime, friends in power, and then a coalition of Islamic and Western powers, including the United States, they start supporting the groups that were fighting against the Soviet-backed government in Kabul that became known as the Mujahideen. Okay. okay? So this is the time that Afghanistan becomes really messy for everyone. Huh? <laughs> All right, so let's, let's start from there, right? So I guess it's the Taliban that takes over or has a big, um, uh, big role in all this too, right? Uh, well, the Taliban doesn't uh, play any significant role until 1994. Right, right, right. Because for much of the 1980s, there is this um, conflict between uh, the pro-Soviet government in Kabul, backed by uh, you know divisions of the Soviet army, and then the Mujahideen who are based, the leadership are based in Iran and Pakistan. Yes. Okay? But they are receiving this and the supply of weapons and money from, uh, you know. So uh, they are uh, fighting um, um, the government forces. In 1989, the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan. And then in 1992, uh, the last pro-Soviet government in Kabul collapses because the Soviet Union collapses everywhere and they, mm -hmm. they are unable to provide the support they were providing for the government in Kabul until then. So what happened is all of these Mujahideen, you know, they came and, and take over, uh, take control of Afghanistan, including Kabul. And how did they then, feel about the Hazaras? Well, uh, it is uh, quite uh, complicated history here because for the first time during the 1980s for, I think, uh, 13, 14 years, the Hazaras have become sort of semi-autonomous, okay, in their areas. The government collapsed uh, in their areas for much of the 1980s because it was uh, also uh, quite a mountainous region, very hard to secure, uh, and there was very little strategic advantage of you know, putting too many troops to defend those areas, you know, with no real uh, strategic advantage. So the government was focused on the highways and major cities, and you know, much of the Hazara areas were not very important to them. So having said that, now in by 1992, there are these various groups among the Hazaras, they have formed a new group called uh, 
Hezbollah, or the, the Party of Unity. And this is a group that is also demanding uh, you know, greater participation in a new government. Okay. Uh, and then uh, all of when all of these mujahideen come to power in uh, come to Kabul, they cannot uh, they cannot agree on a government, uh, and hence there is this new phase of civil war, as it is called in the history of Afghanistan, between various uh, groups, uh, and the Hazaras being one of those several groups uh, uh, fighting um, other groups for control of Kabul from 1992 to 1996. And then in 1996, uh, uh, sorry, in 1994, in the middle of all of this mayhem and anarchy, the Taliban emerges in Kandahar. Oh boy. With support from Pakistan, <laughs> uh, because they, uh, uh, you know, initially start saying, well, the Mujahideen, they have been corrupted. They cannot bring, uh, uh, you know, law and order, and we are, you know, Taliban mean students, right? These are uh, initially at least supposedly students of these religious uh, madrasas, schools. Uh, they started um, mobilizing and attacking local warlords in southern Afghanistan. And then they became just one uh, other group that fought against the Mujahideen for control of Afghanistan until the 19 until 2001. So, and then it is during the Taliban that the situation for the Hazaras changes quite dramatically again. Because uh, the Taliban, uh, uh, they are um, subscribing to a fundamentalist, uh, uh, you know, version of Sunni Islam, and many of them in their leadership ranks, uh, they uh, hold the opinion that the Shias are not Muslims. And then in their ranks, they also have got uh, militants from other countries around the world, uh, including uh, you know, some from Pakistan, you know, some from you know, Gulf and Arab countries, from Central Asia. And some of them are even more hardline in terms of their views on the Shia. So uh, as a result of this, what we have, what we see is a series of incidents of um, this mass killing of Hazaras during the Taliban rule across Afghanistan, uh, the most significant of which took place in August of 1998 uh, in uh, the northern city of Mazar Sharif, uh, when the Taliban took control of the city for the second time. Um, and then uh, for the next several days, they started this mass killing of um, uh, you know, various group, but you know, particularly targeting the Hazaras. Uh, there are reports that several thousand people were killed in, during those days uh, after the Taliban took control of the city. What what gain do they get out of killing Hazaras? I mean, from a from I mean, are they making money out of this, or do they get more power out of this? Why waste your time and spending so much time and energy killing these groups of people unless there's something you get out of this? Well, I think this is quite an interesting question. Um, uh, I think it is a combination of all of those factors. Okay. Uh, for, because, I, you know, again, this brings us back to the question we had, like, you know, sectarian conflict. Is it all purely religious or, or are there other factors involved as well? Uh, right. Are people uh, healing other people simply because they are members of a different faith group or uh, religious group or they're also fighting over resources uh, power you know land and money and those kind of things so i right. think uh, you know when it comes to the uh, you know the complex history of the hazaras i think you know uh, from uh, the 19th century onwards you can see uh, the role of land conflict over land okay it's a very important factor uh, and control over uh, uh, power, who is in the government. Uh, because the, 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 the interesting thing about the Hazaras is that they are a minority in terms of religion, but they are not a minority, uh, but they are, a, in terms of ethnic identity, they are a minority in the country of, of minorities. Okay? Because Afghanistan doesn't have an ethnic majority. 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So, so all of this, you know, the Pashtuns are the largest ethnic group, maybe roughly around 40% of the population of the country. But the Hazaras are, you know, big enough, right? That, you know, you know that can exert influence. Okay. Okay. But also, it's quite a minority when it comes to religion. Okay. So um, I think you know. At the same time, they are distinctive in in, in a lot of ways. They uh, they look different uh, in terms of their facial features. You know, most Hazaras. Uh, have uh, you know, Central Asian facial features, right? right? Uh, uh, and so they are quite easily identified. In, so in it's the, not really an anti-Hazara campaign. It's more like an anti-Shia campaign. But because Hazaras look uh, are easily identif- identified, they become easier targets. Is that is that, uh, am I right to say this? Well, I think uh, I, I think I, I would still say that it's a, a combination of those things. So in, in a in a uh, in a violence like uh, let us say. The 1998 killing of the Hazaras in, uh, in Mazar Sharif, you would find groups that are motivated by just the sectarian hatred. You know, uh, they just kill Shias because they're Shias, right? Right. And you would also find people who uh, attack Hazaras because uh, of ethnic uh, identity issues, right? Um, uh, and there might be people who might be motivated by local conflict over resources, land, water, power, power, you know, those kind of things. So I, so I think for any of those mass atrocities, I think we should look at a range of factors. Okay. And religion being, I think, quite an important one, but not the only one. So in Pakistan, in Quetta, which is, I think, has the biggest population in Pakistan of Hazaras. Why, why did that, whatever's happening in Afghanistan, how did it end up also in Pakistan? And why are they being killed in Pakistan also? Because recently there in the news, there was a, an execution of 10 or 11 minors. Yeah. Well, I think in, in Pakistan, um, there is, uh, you know, one has to see this in the context of the particular history uh, and geography of Pakistan itself. Uh, the Hazaras are quite a sizable group in uh, the capital of Balochistan, which is Quetta. I think they form about uh, probably half a million or even more uh, in terms of population. But they are also located in sort of ethnic neighborhoods in Pakistan. For much of their history, the Hazaras were quite uh, an influential group uh, in the history and politics of Pakistan. You know, the Hazaras quite have a very long history of um, uh, participating in Pakistani military forces. They have got generals and, and quite senior and the members of the Hazaras have occupied quite senior ranks uh, within the army uh, in Pakistan. But at the same time, you know, we see, uh, you know, one part of this story is, I think, uh, uh, dynamics of religious conflict within Pakistan. Shias versus Sunnis. Shias versus Sunnis. We saw this happening, uh, I think, in the 1980s, 1990s. Other parts of Pakistan as well. So in Punjab, in Sindh. So there is some reflection of what is happening in those other Pakistani provinces in Kuwait as well. But we should also see uh, Koita is a place where uh, it is um, quite, um, you know, a troubled history, has a quite a troubled history, right? Yeah. Baluchi insurgency and lawlessness and, you know, uh, and these grievances of the Baluchis with regards to the Pakistani state. Uh, so uh, all of these groups um, have you know, various forms of grievances. And in, in, in within all of this, what we see is, that Koita is also as a staging ground for various groups and including Pakistani establishment for their policies in Afghanistan. So they, uh, uh, from the 1980s, were training grounds, uh, camps for uh, training the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. 
and madrasas supported by the Pakistani army and, and the Saudis and, and others that were used in their view to uh, uh, wage a war in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union and give the pro-Soviet government in Kabul. So as a result of that, what, what happened was after the Soviet Union left and some of this group went and joined uh, and uh, supported the Taliban in Afghanistan, there were others who stayed in Pakistan, right? So that intensified that sort of uh, domestic um, conflict in Pakistan and Hazaras, you know, seems to be uh, that easily um, uh, picked that on easy group to, to, to attack, to, to bully. To bully, yeah, exactly. So, so uh, they're just like in the middle of this tornado and from and they've got the Pakistani conflict side and they've got the Afghanistan conflict side and it's just a really big mess and they all kind of clash each other and yep. they just get the worst end of it. Exactly. That tornado probably is by the right word to use. Uh, you see, um, I think you know, there's also this um, uh, rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia for the leadership of the Islamic world, right? Yes. Uh, so which has created this kind of Shia Sunni tension across the world. You know, again, you know, those tensions could be locally over resources or, or land, water, power. Uh, but at the same time, you know, this Shia Sunni conflict at the global level, you know, between the Iranian government and the Saudis, right? Uh, they you know, gave a different layer of meaning to what is happening locally and these conflicts in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in Yemen now, in Syria, right? Yeah, Yemen and Syria. That's yeah, all terrible. Wow. How, yeah. okay, let's, let's go. <laughs> That's so messy. Let's go to current politics, okay? Does the government of Pakistan treat Hazaras a lot less? You know, like, is there systematic racism towards Hazara groups? Well, I think that is um, a question probably I am not in a good position to comment on. Very okay. closely. But, okay. but the, the, let me make a general observation here. I think the Hazaras have historically been um, treated quite well by certain institutions of the Pakistani state. As I said, the Hazaras have a very long history of going in um, in military institutions, in the army, in navy, I think, uh, you know, like individual Hazaras who really went in high ranks uh, in those institutions. But you know, when you talk about the Pakistani government, it is also quite complicated. You know, what level of the government you are talking about, right? Right. So certain institutions uh, in Pakistan, I think, especially at the at the local level. It seems that they are quite, um, uh, at least not indifferent, in if not discriminatory, uh, with respect to the situation of Hazaras in Balochistan. So whether a discrimination against the Hazaras is in a policy of the state in Islamabad, I doubt that because I think the Hazaras are such a small minority in a larger picture of Pakistan, a, a country of more than 200 million people, the Hazaras are less than 1 million people throughout Pakistan. So I think, you know, and that bigger picture, I think it is not a, a, a big uh, issue for Pakistani leadership. But I think what you see is more a problem of societal, you know, sectarianization, discrimination, prejudice uh, that has taken hold in Pakistan. And the Pakistani is elites and uh, um, certain institutions uh, being unable or unwilling to confront that sort of social level um, spread of hatred, radicalization, the kind of Shia versus Sunni, you know, or one group against other groups in Pakistan. And now here, I think we can also make this kind of broader generalization that you know Pakistani elites have historically exploited these groups when they have found them and the interest to do so, 
I, mean, I said I think the Hazaras are too small, you know, to to figure quite prominently in that kind of national politics. What I was saying was this kind of extremist groups like Taliban, oh. other groups which are in, ex, other groups which are inspired by uh, uh, Taliban in uh, in Pakistan. So because they also sometimes uh, influence. Uh, voting behavior in certain parts of Pakistani society, right? Yeah. So, so there are these sort of coalitions being made between this uh, elite at the national level and these extremist groups at the local level, you know, which, from the view of the Pakistani state or national leadership, may not have any uh, intended consequences for the Hazaras. But the bigger picture is, you know when there are sort of alliances between the national elites and extremist groups, they tend to empower, uh, uh, you know, extremist groups. Uh, and then, then those extremist groups can use the space created for them to target groups like the Hazaras and other minority groups in Pakistan. Right. Do you, do you have hope? Are you optimistic for the Hazaras? in both Afghanistan and Pakistan? Well, I think this is uh, an important question to comment upon. I think they are, um, you know, we have to have hopes, right? Because uh, I think uh, if you lose hope, <laughs> that, that is the end of the story, right? Right. <laughs> but I think, you know, that also, I mean, the Hazaras, the situation of Hazaras must be seen as part of the broader history of that region. I think uh, the Hazara, what happens to the Hazaras, I often say, is a reflection of what is happening to everybody else in that part of the world. Uh, so the Hazaras is just a microcosm of what is happening in that region. And I think there are, you know, source of hope. I mean, the Hazaras are quite uh, creative. Uh, group uh, uh, in terms of trying to deal with uh, the impact and the trauma of the violence that have been going through, both in Pakistan uh, and also Afghanistan uh, for longer than Pakistan. And then there are also, I think, uh, in the moderate voices, solidarity, you know, which often goes across those divisions. I think when you see, uh, for example, incidents of violence against the Hazaras, you also see expression of solidarity yeah. from the broader civil society, uh, both in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and the rest of the world. And I think those expressions of solidarity are quite important uh, source of hope for the future of that country. So I think uh, uh, it's important not to be naive, uh, but I think there are you know, sources of hope as well that we can uh, uh, see both within the Hazaras, but also in terms of what is happening in, in the broader uh, Pakistani or Afghan or other societies in the region. Very cool. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you very much for thank you. No, thank you. Take care. Okay, you take bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.